Well, good morning. I was reminded when we were singing that song of, uh, the, not the last one, but the one prior to that. We haven't sang that song in a while. That's a, that's a great just to give contemplation of our lives, the brevity of life, and um, just, and then on a daily basis, seeking the Lord uh, for his goodness and the ability to walk in that abundant life that Christ died to offer us. And I was thinking how even here just this morning, we, we've, um, I noticed that uh, precious Judy is here with us today. Hey, Judy. And her son, Michael. You know, we've, over the last few weeks, uh, been praying for the family and for Dan's, with Dan's passing. Um, and just the uh, brevity of life. It goes by so fast. I remember at the funeral, seeing those pictures of you guys when y'all were young. The entire world was out ahead of you. Everything was going to be brand new. And um, it just reminded me of that and the importance of numbering our days. So, Judy, we're continuing to pray for you. It's good to see you this morning. And I pray that the body of Christ will be a great comfort for you on this Lord's Day. And then in juxtaposed to that, we've got uh, the Kurs right here. They announced to me this week, I was over at their house, they were feeding me some really good pheasant and the announcement was made that they're expecting and so we rejoice together with you guys and may God continue to bless uh, your union and use you for his purposes and for his glory through your family you guys have a beautiful testimony of the Lord we're praying for you guys and so you can go from one to the other, and there is, there is the process of life. We're here one day, and we're not in another. And it seems as if it's in the twinkling of an eye, does it not? The gray heads are saying, absolutely. Jack right here is going, I don't know, man, i got a long ways to go, right, Jack? He's like, I, I'm feeling good. Well, good, but trust me, it passes by quickly. Well, if you brought your copy of God's Word... Open to Matthew chapter 3. We're going to continue where we left off last week. We made it through a couple of verses in Matthew chapter 3 last week. The goal is to get through verse 10 here today. And um, Matthew is showing us how uh, solidly, how John's ministry was in keeping with and a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. And if you're counting, uh, perhaps you're one of those that likes to take these kinds of notes. If you're counting, now in our passage this morning, we're going to see the sixth time that Matthew shows how Jesus and this, the events that were surrounding his, his life, his birth, etc., are direct fulfillments of Old Testament prophecy. In chapter 1, we had Jesus' virgin birth. We see that from Isaiah 7.14 and Isaiah 9.6. Chapter 2, Jesus being born in Bethlehem, according to Micah 5.2, uh, again in chapter 2, Jesus being called out of Egypt for, there from Hosea 11.1. Um, and when Herod sought to kill and did slaughter the many Jewish babies there in Jerusalem, we saw that that was um, in connection with Jeremiah 31.15. And then the fact that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, Matthew himself inscripturates that there in Matthew 2.23, but says he heard that through several of the prophets. 
And now in chapter 3, Jesus' forerunner, John the Baptist, uh, in fulfillment of Isaiah 43, uh, is the forerunner of the promised coming Messiah King. And so when we start asking questions like, why would Matthew be front-loading his gospel with so much of this connectivity to the Old Testament? What does, why does all this Old Testament prophecy stuff matter um, after all, well, one of the things I mentioned, I think, in week two was just how Matthew was unequivocally hitching Jesus to the Old Testament scriptures. To try to unhitch Jesus from the Old Testament is a um, is, is dereliction of exegetical uh, magnitude. It, it, Jesus is absolutely tethered to the Old Testament, and apart from the Old Testament, we would just say, oh, there's this guy, Jesus, who was born. And we have nothing that tells us about why. And, and all it, the, the Old Testament is just, it's everything with regard to the gospel, Christ's ministry, and who he is and claimed to be. Now, <clears throat> the reason why prophecy is an, is, is an indication of such magnitude is it, it helps us develop a, a sense of, of a rightness when we talk and speak about divine authorship of the scriptures. Uh, predictive prophecy. It's one thing to say that, that's, you know, Hosea was a prophet, but then if Hosea were to speak things and says he's speaking from God and these things never come to pass, we might just say, well, Hosea perhaps had some, you know, bad enchiladas that night and under indigestion thought that he just had a, a vision of something. Predictive prophecy is a significant anchoring to time and history of divine authorship and the trustworthiness of the message of the scriptures because of the minute probability of the fulfillment of these things that are spoken. We recognize that when the prophets say what they say, only God himself has the capacity or the capability of pulling that off. Anybody can say anything they want to say, but unless God acts, unless there is a God who acts... And you're, if you're speaking from God, only God can make this stuff happen. And so it brings a, it's a solid apologetic for the trustworthiness and the divinity of the scriptures as was given in the Old Testament and that Jesus himself is the said fulfillment of those. I remember a long time ago, it's been a while now, any of you ever remember that book from Max Anders, 30 Days to Understanding the Bible? This probably predates many of you. But um, I remember seeing in Max Anders' writing, and I don't know if this was original with Max or not, um, and I didn't bother trying to ferret out whether it was Max's original idea or concept or if he got this somewhere else. But he talked about how, and I went back, I found my book actually on the shelf, Max Anders, 30 Days of Understanding. I couldn't believe it. I searched through and I found it. There's Max. So I pulled it off and I kind of rebrushed up on it, but he indicates that there, were, there are 60 major prophecies and 270 ramifications in the Old Testament about the Messiah and how Jesus Christ in his life and the events surrounding his life fulfilled every one of those predictions. And he indicated that the probability of Jesus fulfilling merely eight of those 60 major prophecies is a 1 in 10 to the 17th power probability. And that looks something like that. So it's a, it's a one with 17 zeros. So one chance out of this large number right here, there we go, here we go, that Jesus could be the one that fulfilled said prophecies, which um, 
statistically speaking, if you kind of throw God out of the equation, what does that leave us with? It leaves us with, a, with an improbability. It leaves us with something that would be statistically and mathematically impossible for one man to fulfill eight of those, much less even one of those. And I love the illustration that he gave um, for this. And I think that he's saying if you were to take this many um, silver dollars, that's a lot of silver dollars, he seems to indicate that you could perhaps cover the entire state of Texas with silver dollars two feet deep. And so if you took one of those silver dollars and you put an, a special marking on that silver dollar and you put it there in the state of Texas that's covered two feet deep with this number of silver dollars and then you somehow were able to mix them all up, just, just mix them all up and then you were to send a blind man at the border of Oklahoma heading into Texas and you said, listen, you can traverse anywhere you want over the entire state of Texas but at some point you're going to have to reach down and you're going to have to pick up that one particular silver dollar that's been marked. That's one in 10 to the 17th power chances of Jesus fulfilling, they say, even just eight of these 60 prophecies. And when we look at the New Testament, we see that Jesus fulfills how many? All of them. All of them. Um, I would say the probability of Jesus not being the, science, the, the, the Messiah is mathematically impossible. So again, as I mentioned, Matthew hitching Jesus to the Old Testament as a basis for his apologetic, which is what he's doing here, of Jesus being the long-awaited Messiah King. Um, I would say is a very strong apologetic indeed. How about you? So, in other words, when you read the, the Gospel of Matthew, if you were a first century Jewish person, perhaps they, weren't, they didn't have calculators that could calculate out to these, I don't know. But what Matthew is doing is he's making it statistically impossible for you not to recognize that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah King. And in the sixth Old Testament fulfillment that we get to in our passage this morning, in chapter 3, verse 3, Uh-oh, I opened up the wrong PowerPoint. No, I didn't. Where am I at? Where am I at, Lisa? I put verse 1, and I was supposed to put verse 3. Y'all brought your Bibles, didn't you? Right? Jinx Bible Church. Okay, the sixth of those Old Testament prophecies that he gets to, we pick up here in chapter 3. Notice... Matthew 3, chapter 3 with me, but not up here in your own Bible. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, again, this is the sixth time that Matthew is, is using this, um, this method of validating and affirming who Jesus is. Isaiah the prophet said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. John the Baptist, as previously mentioned, was the one that was to be the herald of the coming Messiah King. Now, when you think about it, in ancient times, <clears throat> a herald is the individual that precedes the arrival of a king, and in doing so, he's announcing and preparing for uh, the safe and proper travel and arrival of, of the king. And so John, he came 
And when he came, he came in such a way that he was fulfilling that very prophecy and that, that ministry, if you will. He was the one that was to make straight the way of the Lord. He was the one that was going to be removing obstacles. You know, when a king is coming, that herald would go forth and not only clear the road, but he would be announcing along the way, the king is coming, the king's coming, prepare for the king, he's coming, and then they're making paths straight. They're removing obstacles of all sorts and making the path straight. This is exactly what John the Baptist was doing, but John the Baptist was doing it in such a way that it was a, a, a transformation of people's hearts. He was removing those obstacles of the heart, the things that would cause people to stumble in their hearts with regard to recognizing that the king is coming and that the one that follows after me is indeed the, the long-awaited Messiah king. And so his announcement was, the kingdom of heaven is at, it's at hand. That long-awaited kingdom that the Old Testament prophets, Jesus tethered to these Old Testament prophets, it is at hand. And so he came and he was preaching a message of repentance. The greatest need of all people is the obstacles in our heart that keep us from knowing Christ. So John, um, as we see, is structurally a foundational figure that 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 Matthew uses to say, this is the man who, was, who came to precede the coming of Jesus Christ, the long-awaited Messiah King, and John is in complete fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It was predicted, here he is. And it seems that he's going to show us the success of John's ministry in such a way that lets us know that the, the success that John was having in his wilderness preaching as people were coming out to John to hear about this amazing uh, good news of, of Jesus Christ, that there were those who were catching his message and they were starting to believe that, yes, this John fellow perhaps is the fulfillment of the Isaiah 40 passage. After all, we heard about this John and his miraculous birth, that his mother Elizabeth was beyond childbearing age and his father Zechariah, he, he was mute for 10 months because he questioned the angel that told him this. That news probably started circulating would be my guess and thus the crowds came even larger. And they started to believe that John was a prophet and that he was indeed the forerunner to the Messiah. Which is one of the reasons why it seems that these uh, Jewish people were, um, were, were giving themselves over to baptism. That they were giving themselves to an, a baptism by immersion. Because what they were... Um, doing was completely contrary to what Jews normally would have done. If a Jew was in need of repentance, what would they have done? They would have gone to the temple. They would have made a, a, an offering, some sort of sacrifice on a daily basis for repentance, the forgiveness of sins. That's what they would have done. So the, the, the mere fact that they are here seen going out into the wilderness lends me to a, a solid belief that they believe that this one, John, was indeed the one that was referred to by Isaiah the prophet and that he was there to make ready the way of the Lord. Now, the preaching that precedes, uh, that, that follows the ministry of Jesus Christ, we see that the preaching of these apostles fall hand in hand 
with the preaching of John, except on a few occasions. And I just wanted to highlight this, to bring this to your attention, <clears throat> so that you could see that the message that the apostles went preaching, and then thus the message that we are still preaching, has its origin in what John himself was doing and saying. Notice what Peter says. Now, Peter here is speaking to a crowd mainly of Jewish people. And, and he says here in Acts 2.23, he says, This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. Now, some of these individuals perhaps were some of those individuals that went out to John the Baptist while he was in the wilderness preaching, and they were repenting for a baptism of repentance, and they were believing that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, and they were believing that John was the forerunner. But then all of a sudden, when Jesus didn't do what the Messiah for the, what the forerunner or the Messiah was supposed to do, i.e. establish an earthly kingdom, they started getting cold. And so now on the, on, the, on the back side of that, some of these people to whom Peter's preaching, I think perhaps might have been some of those same people who had, who had received John's baptism and then kind of changed their minds. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God, verse 24, raised him up again, putting an end to that agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. And by the time we get to verse 37 and 38 there in Acts chapter 2, as, P as Peter continues um, in, in his sermon there, um, we see that the conviction of the Holy Spirit had clearly pierced their hearts as evidenced by what they asked Peter and the other apostles that were there with them. It says, now, when they heard this there in verse 37... They were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and to the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Imagine the, 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 uh, the, the ghastly feeling they must have had when they're starting to, to put together that we, we murdered. We murdered the king. We've been anticipating from the Old Testament all these years the coming and the, and the, the foundation of a kingdom, and we killed him. What shall we do? Is there a remedy for this? I don't think they had any clue of the whole concept between the, the first coming and the second coming that, you know, as they're reading the book of Isaiah, they're still, they're still trying to figure this out. It took the disciples a long time to figure it out. They were even saying at the beginning of Acts, well, it's now the time. That, that, that aspect of an earthly kingdom being established by the coming long-awaited king was so rooted into the fabric of Judaism, that became a, a, a hurdle over which many of them stumbled. So now their hearts have been pierced by the preaching of Peter, and they're saying, what should we do? And notice, notice how Peter's preaching and John's preaching are so similar indeed. Peter said to them the very thing that John came preaching of, of, of repentance. Of repentance. He, Peter says, repent. And each of you be baptized... What did John come doing? Baptizing. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now this is where we see that, that they've got broader and more refined progressive revelation. These were some things that John wasn't saying in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And that you would receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The offering of Jesus Christ... 
these apostles and their preaching are articulating, and this is why baptism, this is why baptism in the name of Jesus and the need for repentance and baptism in the name of Jesus for the remission of your sins uh, became that which ultimately uh, was founded in a, in a stable foundational uh, ordinance within the church of Christ himself. And in 70 AD, when Rome destroyed Jerusalem, the temple was never rebuilt, and that entire sacrificial system was completely moved away, leaving exclusively for anybody who wanted to believe that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah a need of repentance and baptism, just like John the Baptist came preaching. Jesus now is the only blood sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The only one that God accepts for the remission and forgiveness of sins is putting faith and trust in him. So the preaching of the apostolic fathers simply mirrors with some tweaks, progressive revelation, that of what we see John establishing there in the wilderness as the forerunner of the long-awaited Messiah King. And our preaching today, like John's, is still a message of repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we, like they, are not wanting anyone to die apart from belonging to the body of Christ, the church, as those who will inherit that coming earthly kingdom when he comes again. I mean, we are absolutely, John is such a foundational Old Testament prophet that kind of brings to an end almost that Old Testament prophetic voice. After 400 years of silence, he comes in fulfillment of Isaiah 40, verse 3. And his preaching of repentance and that water baptism, although then wasn't quite the exact same concept perhaps as we understand now in the New Testament church, as I'd mentioned, this aspect of being baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, John wasn't heralding that, nor the aspect of the receiving the Holy Spirit. These are some things that Jesus and his teaching added to and filled out what we call the gospel of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So my earnest desire and, and heart's cry for all of us here this morning is that if there's even just one person here this morning who has yet to genuinely exercise biblical repentance, to not do so without leaving. Matthew has left us an astounding witness and testimony to the fact that Jesus was in fulfillment of the Old Testament prophets, which would be absolutely impossible, as we notice, for any singular individual to be the fulfillment of all 60 of those, much less just eight, that Jesus is who he claimed to be the Son of God, the Son of Man. And to truly exercise that biblical repentance today before you leave, if you've not done that. And how do you know if you've done that? Well, biblical repentance, as we read from the passage this morning, it's evidenced by a genuine desire from the heart to turn away from sinful behavior and to turn towards Christ instead. To turn to Christ, to follow him, to live for his purposes and his plans and the reason we do this is because as John's ministry is a forerunner to Christ, it seems it's also he's a forerunner to, to, the, to the Messiah, but to the Messiah's entire ministry. And one of the things that Jesus accomplishes with his ministry at the cross is what? The fulfillment of the new 
covenant. And in the new covenant, what did God promise that he was going to do? Remove hearts of rebellion and give us hearts of flesh. That actually from the heart now, see when you're, when genuine biblical repentance has taken place, God has made a spiritual transaction in the inner person that cannot be revoked or denied. And it brings transformation of life. Does it make you perfect? Does it make you just like Jesus where you never, you become sinless? The answer is no. But what does it do? It gives you from the heart a desire to now to want to say no to sin and yes to God. And then the temptation comes. Lust of the flesh, lust of the eyes, boastful pride of life, putting to death the deeds of the flesh, walking by faith, not by sight. That sojourning of the Christian that's an onward Christian soldier kind of march, right? And so we, until the day we die, we actively and we aggressively seek to put to death the deeds of the flesh in order to walk in obedience to God. And it comes from a new heart. You actually want to do that. You actually find within yourself a resource and a desire that you didn't have previously that God placed there to want to be pleasing to him, to want to love him, to want to love his church, to love God's people, to, to show up at church, to worship with God's people, to sing with them, to bear their burdens, to, fill, to fulfill the law of Christ. God does that within the inner man. And that comes by way of the free gift of salvation, which was accomplished exclusively by Christ on the cross. Now, in verses 4 through 6, Matthew then tells of the scope of John's early ministry and some of the success stories that he has there in his early ministry. Notice in verse 4, he says, Now, John himself had a garment of camel's hair and a leather's belt around his waist, and his food was locust and wild honey. Then... Jerusalem was going out to him. Oh, by the way, if you're interested in, in like a weight loss program, the John the Baptist diet, I've heard, is probably pretty effective. I don't know if you have to wear the leather and, you know, camel's hair, but, man, if, you just, uh, if, if your food was just locusts and some wild honey, I think you'd have some success there. But then, verse 5, Jerusalem was, then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan, and they were being baptized. So what do we see here? They were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. So it seems from Matthew's account that John's ministry was being effective. People from Jerusalem were going out to the wilderness of Judea to see and hear John. That believing that after these 400 years of silence, the word of God brought forth this man who was clearly in the stead of Isaiah 43, as we've mentioned. And we see that there were those who were going out to him and were being baptized. Now look at verse 5, just with me again real quick and notice. It says, then Jerusalem was going out to him and all Judea and all the district around the Jordan. I think when we... When we put together Jerusalem is going out and, and all Judea and all the district of around the Jordan, it, it doesn't seem to indicate that it was some small number of people that were going out to John. It seems the scripture seems to indicate that there was a, a pretty healthy group of people who had who were making their way out to hear this man and, and, and to experience the ministry of John the Baptist and, and to hear what he had to say with regard to the coming of the kingdom of heaven that was at hand. In this preaching of Repentance and the need for water baptism. 
And so it says there in verse 6, and they were being baptized, which gives us the indication that God was successfully moving people's hearts to, to recognize this truth about John. And they confessed as they were confessing their sins, being baptized. We see here that those wishing to repent were not allowed to do so privately. One of the unique things of baptism is that it's a public demonstration. It's a public display of something that God does on the inside. Some people could have just gone out to the wilderness, been at a distance, heard John's preaching, and kind of been like internally, you know, I think he's true. I'm going to repent. Okay, I, re- I repent. And they just kind of silently go back into the back, back to home, away from the crowds, and go back to just living their life as normal. No. John wasn't allowing that to happen. There was a baptism of repentance. There was an outward expression of what God had done and what you were choosing to do on the inside, on the inner man, which is still exactly what and how we describe the uh, ordinance of baptism today. It's an outward symbol of an inward conversion. So if somebody perhaps, let's say, because when we read the Peter passage, it says, what shall we do? And it says, repent and be baptized. Sometimes people like to kind of parlay these two together and say it's repentance and baptism that equals salvation. So if you repent but, that you don't, but you're not baptized, you can't truly be saved. Well, we could do an excursus on that and kind of flow through the, the New Testament and articulate how that's not a biblical doctrine that needs to be taught within the church and isn't one of the doctrines within mainline Protestant theology. There are some, however, who hold to that but it's, that's, that's, a, that's an incorrect understanding of the purpose of the sign of baptism. It's just a sign of what God has done on the inside. Perhaps we'll uh, expand on that a little bit, and I'll have maybe an excursus sermon some way here along when we get a little bit later as, as Jesus starts teaching, and the need for baptism might be a good time to kind of fit that in. But just know that this baptism... This repentance that was followed by baptism, they, people were not allowed to silently uh, make a, a, a change of heart from the inside and make a declaration that I want to follow God without having some kind of an outward sign that, re, that resembled that. And what might make that such, such an important reality? Well, it puts you on what? It's called notice. Because you're out there in the wilderness and perhaps some of your friends or family members or some of the people that lived in the neighborhood that you lived in whatever it puts you on notice that hey I saw Matt Harkey I saw what you did you were in the wilderness and I saw you go into the waters and I saw you take the baptism of John are you are you denouncing Judaism because you know you don't you don't need to do that you just simply need to go to the temple take maybe a dove or in your case a red heifer I don't know for the forgiveness of sin. Right, Matt? And you're going to say, well, no. I believe, I believe that this John has come in fulfillment of Isaiah 46. I listened to his message. We've had 400 years of silence since the prophets were speaking. I believe this is true and that the kingdom of heaven is at hand. There's one following him, as John has been saying, that's mightier than he is. And that's the king. That's the king who's coming to set up the king. I believe that, and so I want to get right with God. I'm repenting, and I accepted that water baptism because that's what that man said needed to take place. And that's who Isaiah said was coming. It puts you on notice. You're on public display now. Kerr, I saw you go in the waters. 
James, you can look down, but I know you went there too. I saw you in the waters. Put you on public display. Greg, I know you went into the waters. You're, you're, you're a public display, which makes you somewhat of an ambassador that the message that he was preaching, you've affirmed, and you should be about trying to let that good news be known as well. And in that day, it would be the king is coming. This is his forerunner, and he's coming to establish the kingdom. And everybody in, in Judea and Jerusalem would have been saying, yes, we're, we've been waiting for that kingdom and wanting to sit on that throne in keeping with the Davidic covenant. It's here. Yes. Yes, right? So baptism. These people were being baptized and saying, this is what we are believing in. Now, I said previously that maybe some of those were the same people that then maybe got their feet cold. Because why? Because Jesus didn't seem to be establishing that kingdom. And I read a passage for you last week, in, later in the book of Matthew, where John the Baptist himself sent his disciples to Jesus and said, are you really the one? Or should we be looking for someone else? Because they were anticipating that Jesus was going to come and start overthrowing governments and authorities and establishing a kingdom. Even John the Baptist, who knew he came as the forerunner, he's like, are you, are you really the one? And he said, send back to John and tell him these things. That issue of the mystery of the church age is such an important aspect for us to understand in our biblical interpretation as we work our way through this gospel or through any of the gospels. The relevance of the, the aspect of the coming of the kingdom of heaven and the, and the realness of this they perceived that this was to be the kingdom as prophesied through the Old Testament. We just went through the book of Daniel. A kingdom that was going to be established and would endure for how long? Forever. That's what they believed this was all about. And then, notice from verse 7 and following how Matthew makes some very clarifying statements about the relationship between repenting and the changed life, holy living. Notice verse 7. It said, But when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming for baptism, he said to them, You brood of... By the way, this is probably not the most effective evangelistic tool. Hey, when you see the unbelieving come to you, just call them a, a nasty name. It, rem it reminded me of when I was at college at the University of North Texas, there was like a free speech place on campus. And... It was by the student union, so tons of people were constantly going by that. And there would always be these, these street preachers. Every day there would be a street preacher out there, man, and they were screamers. I mean, they would stand, they would just perch themselves somewhere in that little corridor. And every single person that went by, they indiscriminately, they didn't know if this was a believer or an unbeliever. <laughs> they shouted down every single person that went by, called them horrible names. I mean, just berated them mercilessly. Oh, and then said, you better believe in Jesus or you're going to hell. I mean, I'm, so it reminded me a little bit. You brood of vipers. You, you, you people are deadly. Your doctrines are deadly. Your legalism is deadly. You're, the, you're, the, you're, you're a brood. You're the, you're, the, you're the descendants of those who have perpetuated um, doctrines that are not consistent with the teaching of God's word, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Now, 
I don't know about you, but that phrase right here, who warned you to flee from, flee from what? What wrath? John, the Baptist? John the Baptist didn't have a New Testament. Did he? Nope. Didn't have any epistles. All he had was his Old Testament scriptures. John is making a connection with what? The coming and the establishment of the kingdom of Jesus Christ with what? With wrath. See that? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. You need to repent. You need to get your heart right with God. And you need to do a, a, a visible expression of that. You need to accept water baptism. These Pharisees, Sadducees shows up, these religious leaders. He chides them and he says, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? John puts together uh, that Old Testament concept that, that when the king comes and establishes his kingdom. Y'all remember the book of Daniel, right? That when the king comes and establishes his kingdom, so also comes the king's wrath. So also comes the king's Wrath. And so what wrath might this have been? Well, wrath, there's, I went and I looked into uh, my concordance and I, in my logos and I typed in the word wrath and out of the Old Testament it pulled up so many hits for the place, for places where wrath is located in the Old Testament. It was, I didn't even bother trying to count them, there were so many. But I did start reading through and kind of got a variety and a feel for the different usages of this word wrath and things of that nature. But on every occasion when, it, when wrath was associated with the coming of the kingdom, when wrath was associated with that, that uh, anticipation of a fulfillment of the king coming back and uh, the Messiah coming and the establishment of his kingdom and the wrath that is established with that, not just general wrath against nations for sin or wrath against the nation of Israel because they were stiff-necked. There's all kinds of uses like that. But when it's associated with the coming of the kingdom of heaven, it's always referenced to and connected with the coming day of the Lord wrath. As we articulated from, we see with progressive revelation now in the book of Revelation, chapter 6, and the opening of the sixth seal and the coming of the king and the associated wrath that comes with the Lamb of God. John the Baptist, I don't have time to expound on this probably any more than that, but John the Baptist is connecting that same wrath with the coming and the establishment of the kingdom of God with said wrath. Who warned you to flee from that wrath? And it seems that they were, they were kind of becoming believers of that. And I've put two passages here one from the New American Standard and one from the ESV because they differed so differently. I wanted to put in their prepositions um, in the way they, in, they interpret the preposition here. I wanted to pull this up because I know a lot of you use the ESV. But notice, uh, at, just right before that, when it talks about who warned you to flee from that wrath to come, they were coming, the Pharisees and Sadducees, these, these spiritual leaders, these bad spiritual leaders, it says right here in, in the NASB that they were coming for baptism, which would indicate for us that they were recognizing too, and this is an important distinction, that perhaps the, these Pharisees and Sadducees, even the, some of the leaders within the, 
Jewish community, the religious Jewish community, were also recognizing who John was and were thus repenting and that they were coming for baptism, indicating that they were being baptized in keeping with John's ministry. They too recognized that, yes, wrath comes with the coming of the king, and we haven't been doing things probably the way we should have. We'd better get our lives straightened up and quick-like. Now, in the ESV, it changes this preposition from a from to a to. It's the preposition epi. So when he saw many of the Pharisees and Sadducees coming, not for baptism, but to his baptism, that translation seems to indicate that the Pharisees and Sadducees weren't coming to be baptized. But perhaps they were just kind of curious and so many people had been going out because most of Jerusalem and the surrounding area were going out to him. There's something going on out in the wilderness. We need to go out and check this out. So they were coming to his baptism to make observance of that but weren't themselves being willing to submit to water baptism. And so then John chides them, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? So it an interpretive decision gets made, and in these translations, the New American Standard being the first one here and the ESV here, and I love both of them, but they do tend to lend themselves in perhaps a different direction. However, I, I do want to say that in the ESV, even if they were coming to his baptism, doesn't preclude that they were being baptized. That doesn't preclude that they were being baptized at all. But in the New American Standard, it seems that this epi is being used in a construction that would indicate a sense of purpose. And then when you get to verse 11, which I don't have verse 11, but in verse 11, which is a, which is a continuation of the conversation that John is having with those Sadducees and Pharisees, he says in verse 11, As for me, I baptize you with water for repentance... But he who's coming after me is mightier than me. It seems that John is indicating there in verse 11 that his baptism, which was a water baptism, is something that he was doing to the you, and the you to whom he was speaking were those religious leaders. And, he's, and he says to them, and I'm kind of backtracking here about what we're about to look at, but, and he says to them, you can't claim that you've got Abraham as your father. Your heritage alone is not going to get you in. You need repentance and baptism. And also the importance of verse 8, the importance of genuine repentance, the bearing of fruit that's in keeping with baptism. But from my perspective, I've chosen to go with the New American Standard because of verse 11, and it seems to me that the conversation that he's having with these, these Pharisees and Sadducees that he continues on, as for me, I baptize you with water for repentance. It seems that they were coming for baptism, which, again, just slow down and take a few steps in their shoes. This is a big deal. These are the kind of things that we read over in the scriptures, and we tend to read over them, and we don't give them much consideration of thought. But this is actually a very big deal that is happening at this place. A lot of the, a lot of the non-religious people were going out to John. They're starting to believe in his message. It got so large that the spiritual leadership of the, of the community decided we better go out and put some ear to the ground on this. So they, they've, had, they've probably already heard about what his message was, but they go out. They start getting convinced too. 
Perhaps this is really the guy from Isaiah 43 who's making straight the way of the Lord. He's saying the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Is this really going to happen? And I don't think that the Pharisees and Sadducees would have been unhappy with King Jesus showing up and establishing a kingdom. They would have been very happy about that. They, were, they, they may have been in bed with Rome, but they weren't in love with Rome. They were doing what Rome wanted them to do in order to just kind of to maintain a semblance of their way of life. Because had they got too rowdy and crowdy, Rome would have put a, a, a stifle on that. But Rome was glad to allow them to kind of exercise their freedoms, their religious freedoms, the way they chose to with the temple and all this kind of stuff, just don't cause any waves. Oh, and if Rome didn't like the high priest at the time, they would just indiscriminately replace high priests along the way, indicating that Rome was in control. So they wouldn't have been upset at all had Jesus showed up and established a kingdom. But I'm going with the New American Standard. I think that they were coming for baptism. And maybe they did come to his baptism, but they were coming to his baptism to be baptized, believing the message that John was preaching. Which, again, is a significant aspect of understanding the rejection of these religious leaders over Jesus and them handing Jesus over to the Romans for crucifixion. There seems to be on the early hills of John's ministry and perhaps even Jesus' ministry a sense of hope and a sense of expectation that he is indeed the long-awaited coming Messiah King. But simply because he didn't show up and start initially making good on what looked to be the overthrowing of governments and the establishing of his kingdom, there was a quick turning away from Christ. Which highlights what? What does that highlight for us? I believe it highlights for us the significance of, the, of a difference of perspective that the Jewish people had with regard to what God is looking to do in people's lives. For them, it was still all about the external realities and the accoutrements that went along with being Jewish and thus receiving all the fulfillments of the promises because of their Jewishness. After all, we have Abraham as our father. God made promises to Abraham. We're the inheritors of those promises. And John is showing up and he's saying, no, it's, it's something far more significant than that. It's an issue of the heart because, baby, let me tell you, the new covenant's coming. And it's all about the heart. And that's where God has always been. It's always been about a relationship with the only true and living God. It's not about the cleaning of the cups and the outside of them. It's about the inward heart of man. And that's what God has come to deal with. And so, again, it seems at the very beginning of John's ministry, there seems to be some excitement and movement towards that reality. But he leaves them with this word here in verse 8. And this is where I'm going to leave you this morning. We're going to pick back up next week. He leaves them then immediately by saying, Therefore, so they're coming for baptism. I'm believing that some of these guys are being baptized, these broods of vipers, these horrid sinners, which were the likes of all of us when we came to faith. They're getting baptized by John. And then John says, oh, by the way, don't forget, you must bear fruit in keeping with repentance. This isn't just another external standard that you add to your placard of things or on your tassel, another string that you add to your tassel of points of spiritual accomplishment that you've done the repentant heart the metanoia of the mind and of the heart is evidenced by a changed life which again I think is the parlay of that of leading right into the new covenant in Christ that happens at the cross at Calvary 
And so he lets them know that there is a connection between repentance and a keeping of fruit that's with genuine repentance. In other words, if you're going to claim repentance, you're going to identify yourself as being one that believes that Jesus is the coming king and he's going to establish a kingdom, your life must be an ample display of that fact. Listen to and obey the word of God. You brood of vipers, now go back and, and tell all your people. They need to get out here and they need the same repentance and baptism. Amen? That's where we're picking up next week. That, man, that clock goes so... When I preach, that clock goes so much faster than anything else I do in life, Royce. It's unbelievable. But here we are at 1130, and I need to wrap up. I love the children's ministry. If you work in the children's ministry, I love you. I don't mean to go long. It just happens. But let me encourage you to not leave this morning without doing some due diligence, internal work of the heart, because... When Matthew wrote this, Jesus is already crucified. He's going to get to the gospel. He's building his case. Let's do some internal work of the heart. Have we, have we truly repented? Have you, have you truly experienced a, a genuine biblical repentance and you've felt it? Well, Pastor, how do you say I felt it? Well, you felt it because God did something on the inside of you. He gave you a new heart's desire to be pleasing to God. Do you feel that urging within because the Holy Spirit is now your, he's, he's your paraclete, he's with you to help you. Do you sense that? Do you feel that? Do you know that to be true of you? That you are one of God's children. That you are a child of God. That from the heart you have a desire to be pleasing to him. And not just the statement of the lips, oh yeah in my heart I feel it, but I just don't do it. No. It's, it's that which gets put on display perfectly, not perfectly, but imperfectly. And as we stumble along the way, we have brothers and sisters in Christ to help lift us up all along the way in our progressive sanctification. Please do due diligence and don't leave this morning without knowing that you belong to him because the king is coming again. This is, this is the whole thing. They, they, they were super confused on that whole two coming thing. He is coming again. And when he comes again, wrath is coming at the establishment of his kingdom. Just like John thought was going to happen this time. Who warned you to flee from that wrath? He's coming again. He's establishing a kingdom and wrath is coming with him. By the way, come out on Thursday night, premillennial theology. We'll be talking about some of these things. If you're interested in more. Let me pray for us.